Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, at any given time, there are around 1,300 children in foster care in Allegheny County, and almost a third of those older kids identify as LGBTQ. They often have to live outside the homes that they grew up in because they aren't getting the affirming love and support that they need. Today, we're talking about why. It's Monday, May 1st. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with Jamie Simmons, the Chief Engagement Officer for Every Child, Inc. Hey, Jamie. Hello. And Meg St. Esprit, one of my favorite local freelancers who's been reporting on this for Public Source. Welcome back, Meg. Thank you so much. Hi. Hi. Um, So you both are coming at this from a pretty interesting place. You're both adoptive parents. You've both worked in child welfare. First, I guess, why are so many children of all backgrounds ending up in care? I think children are ending up in care because their parents have barriers. Their uh, first families have barriers that they cannot break down. Uh, Definitely there are substance use issues. uh, There is lifetime trauma. um, There's poverty, homelessness, um, food insecurity. I think there's all different barriers that are compounded, especially with mental health concerns. uh, That is, unfortunately... Um, being uh, inflicted upon their children. And so really, you know, we're there hopefully as a safety net so that the children have somewhere safe to be as their parents break down their barriers so they can get their kids back. So those barriers are true for anyone. And then you add a compounding factor like a child needing supportive care as, you know, they might be seeking a transition or just, you know, finding their own identity, trying to find their true space. Um, Meg, the numbers you reported in your story for Public Source are stark, like 4,000 kids out of 13,000 identifying as LGBTQ and needing foster care. That's enormous. Yeah. And, you know, when I first came up with the idea for this story and pitched it, I pitched it because we had friends that were our foster families who have kids who are coming out, who have kids that are queer in their home. And we're really just talking about the lack of support that there was. And so I started poking around and it was just a much broader issue than I ever realized. But just like Jamie said, there's already so many barriers that are having kids land in foster care. When you add another layer of a kid that is struggling with identity and families don't know how to support it, it's often just a perfect storm for crisis. Do we have enough families to take care of children in these circumstances? Absolutely not. Never. No. No. What's what's holding us back? 
So the number one, when I'm out talking to people about being a potential foster parent, the number one thing I hear is I could never give them back. Um, and so they feel, I think, uh, potential foster and adoptive parents um, feel that they don't want their heart to be broken uh, when the child reunifies. And we we start breaking that down in our pre-certification training. And I'm going to say I probably came from the same place when we were looking to add to our family. When we started our foster to adoption uh, journey, we came in wanting to only adopt and not understanding the system. And I think once uh, my wife and I really understood the system mm -hmm. and understood the barriers these children were facing and the barriers their families were facing, I started having a greater appreciation to really understand the birth parent journey. And I think that helped me be a better foster parent. It helped me really root for reunification when it was possible. And I think that um, queer families for a very long time or, or queer couples or queer individuals didn't think they could be adoptive parents or foster parents. Well, I mean, queer families have been told historically that they can't participate in society on mm -hmm. so many levels. So, of mm -hmm. course, they would have internalized this message that that's not for me either. Exactly. And there's actually misconceptions that single parents can't be foster parents or that you have to own a home or that you have to be a millionaire or a stay-at-home mom. And mm -hmm. those are just those are misconceptions about foster care that I um, I am constantly answering when I'm talking to potential foster parents. Well, and Jamie, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the work that you do with every child. You know, how do you start these conversations? Kind of what's the process um, and how do you how do you make folks feel good about what comes next? Because so often so much of this is rooted in a place of trauma and it's really hard to get past that moment of, OK, this sucks. This is sad to OK, this is what can come next. So I'd like to think that they leave with a positive message, and I don't know if they do now that I think about it. Um, so let's uh, assume that let's they do. Let's assume that they do. You seem like a um, very rosy person. <laughs> um, so everybody loves her, by the way. Every single person I talked to, I was just at an adoptive mom's retreat, and it was like the Jamie fan club. Anyway, I love that. the Jamie fan club in the foster care community. <laughs> um, so I talk to a lot of foster parents, uh, potential foster parents, and we. Talk about the rough stuff. Um, we talk about that it's it's not rosy, and we talk about which I think is different from the experience I had when I first became a foster parent. Yeah, how so? Um, so we, my wife and I, were first foster parents in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. which is a completely different foster care system than Pennsylvania. It's set up completely different. Um, we went in, as I mentioned before, to adopt a four to eight year old little girl, which we've never had in our home. By the way, <laughs> it's an interesting fun fact. Never had a four to eight year old little girl. Um, that was kind of our dream. And we really quickly, we, when we went to these information sessions, these really rosy pictures were painted for us of this plethora of children waiting to come to my home. And, um, and it really, it, it just, it didn't sit right with me. I was like, I don't really think that this is the way it is. And when we got into the system, I realized that wasn't the way it was. So when we moved to Pennsylvania, we chose another agency because obviously we were coming down to Pennsylvania and I kind of knew better to kind of fall into the rosy thing. And so when I finally had the opportunity to do foster parenting orientation sessions, I was like, we're going to tell people the truth mm -hmm. and I'm not going to do a sales pitch and I'm going to tell them why we need foster parents. And I have, we say at the beginning of our orientation or our information session, 
we don't care if you come to every child. We just want you to have information about being a foster parent. And I think people appreciate that honesty that we give them. One of the first things when I'm talking to new foster parents during orientation, I tell them that it's not about you. Nothing is about you. This isn't a comparison of you to biological parents. And really, you are a safe place for children. Uh, that is what is about you and nothing else is. And uh, once you kind of accept that as a foster parent, that you're a safe space and that you're there to help the community, it's a different journey. Do you like to dance? Look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins, and so will everyone else there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm because this is a theme party. You want to come dressed to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. And Meg, a big portion of what you reported was about this Affirm training through yes. Hulane. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how it differs from the training that everybody would undergo? You know, this is to help um, specifically families of potential queer foster children um, to help them navigate this whole process and feel supported at home. Yeah. So it's actually at this point now part of what all families in Allegheny County are taking. So they everyone now takes it. Everyone now takes it. When we were being certified... I never even had heard of it. Some of our kids are transracially adopted, so we did some trainings around race. Mm -hmm. um, were those adequate? No. <laughs> no, they were mostly about, like, I mean, they were good. They gave good resources and books to read, but I think what really the best training I received was adult adoptees with platforms on the Internet sharing about what not to do and how, you know, being raised in a colorblind home or in an all-white community was really Ooh. damaging to them. So we moved. We were in rural Beaver County when we adopted our twins. Um, and we moved to Bellevue, mm -hmm. which has been great. Um, they have lots of friends that look like them, lots of friends from different backgrounds. Um, but no one told us that, you know, it was more about, I think it was pretty much reduced to like hygiene, like hair, um, which no. is obviously important. It is. To but the black identity. Not but enough. It's not enough. No, no. That's, you know, finding wonderful people to help with our kids' hair was an easy part of our journey compared to helping them integrate their identity as a child of color in a white home. I mean, those are totally different. And I think there's so many parallels between that and a family who is not familiar with LGBTQ issues, having a foster child in their home who identifies as queer. And so the Affirm training at Hugh Lane is really designed and it's designed really well to highlight those issues. Um, so do you know what's included in the training? Maybe, you know, the types of things that are covered? Yeah. So there is definitely kind of learning the language 
of uh, LGBTQ or the language of um, of queer, kind of the ABCs of the LGBTQ. Which is um, constantly evolving. Which is constantly right. evolving. As identities do. <laughs> yes. Um, and then also just um, how to communicate with youth, um, how to start having conversations, how to seek affirming care. And I think what is so important about Allegheny County kind of requiring all families to have this is that a child might come into your home that isn't identifying as queer. And and this is how I explain it to parents that are a little apprehensive about taking it, is that if you're doing your job right and they feel safe and secure, they might come out to you. And at that point, we want to make sure you have tools in your toolbox to at least start those conversations with them. And so I think that's what's so incredible. You know, I, I feel really proud of working at Every Child because we've had a pretty robust DEI element of our pre-cert training even prior to the contract and prior to a firm coming into place. But we also are um, certifying a huge amount of queer foster parents um, over other agencies. I would say that we're about 30 percent. 30 percent of what? 30% of our foster parents identify as queer. Wow. Okay. Of, of how many total-ish? So we only, we actually are a very small agency in a big human service pond. Um, we have about 37 foster families. Um, so I would say over 30%, if not more. Sorry if I'm missing anyone, uh, identifies as queer. Hey, it takes a village. Yeah. And everyone I interviewed for this piece, I talked to two families and then one child who's currently in foster care who identifies as non-binary, they are all with every child um, because they found it really supportive more so than other agencies that they had looked at um, and felt like, you know, they have specific needs as queer foster parents as well, just being honored and respected as they interact with agencies and with the county. And so that really mattered to them to be at an agency that understood that. Have you heard at all from kids who've maybe, you know, been on the receiving end of some of these trainings and conversations about whether it helps? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I interviewed one child who we're calling Quinn because they are not 18 yet. Yeah. Um, they are a wonderful kiddo. And when they ended up with one family in the North Hills that is in the story here, they just really felt like for the first time they were seen and understood. Um, a lot of the reason that they were in foster care was that their biological family was not only not affirming, but honestly abusive about their identity. And so to be in a home where those parents had walked that same path and struggled with their identity just meant the world to them. Yeah, there was a line in your piece that I thought was so powerful that it's hard not to help a former, a past version of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mary said that. She just looked at the referral and just saw herself as a teen. And how do you say no to that? Do you ever talk to anyone who doesn't think that the training is for them or doesn't think that they need it. Um, how do you navigate those conversations? So uh, we have some pushback sometimes. Um, we're very out front about the training being required. So we usually get the pushback in kind of orientation sessions. Mm -hmm. um, and I really, I just explained to them, uh, like I said, if you're doing your job right, this is going to come in handy, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but we are um, we are a very inclusive agency from the beginning. We inclusivity is one of our values that we hold very near and dear to us. It is um, peppered through our policies and the decisions we make as an agency. And so we really 
want parents that are excited about taking a firm. And if they're not excited about taking a firm, we might not be the right agency for them. It's nice to be able to draw a boundary. Yes. Yeah. And and I think to protect we've, kids. And we've we because we really do put children at the center of all of our decisions. And that's that's not only for LGBT affirming homes, that's for families that have preferences or questions about kids of color, with questions about kids with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, mental health issues. Um, we Are you talking want, about parents coming in and being like, I only want a healthy white child? A, a healthy white child right from the hospital. And I want to pick them up and I want to never speak to anyone else again. Um, that, that, is, <laughs> that is just not... I feel gross. Like I need to shake something off Yeah. Now. And so we we are, um, we constantly, we get, we get all this data about what our families look like from from the county, and we always have very, very high rankings of inclusivity from all of our families. Um, I want to say like 98% of our families are willing to take queer youth, and I think that's now 100%, um, which is way above the benchmark of 80%, which I think is sad to begin with. Um, but it, it's way above that. And so I think those conversations are easier when you really have in your um, toolbox that we're really going to require this of all families that come in the door. Yeah. I, when somebody said to us one time that we have the misconception that adoption is about finding kids for families, but it's really about finding families for kids. Correct. And so when you switch it to look at it from that angle, you want to find families for kids that can support them. And mm -hmm. so I think if there are families that, you know, don't want to take the training or are not willing to move to a diverse area or are not willing to make sure that their school is affirming of a child that may come into their care. They might not even know. But it just in that initial certification process, I mean, it's not to say there's not a space for them in the foster care world. But if it's about finding families for kids, you need to find those families that can actually support those kids or they're just going to cause more trauma. Yeah. Well, I know we've talked uh, mostly about foster care families. Is there anything available for uh, biological families for re hopeful reunifications for those that want that? That was one thing I talked with Sarah at Hugh Lane about. They are really working on developing more training modules that can support biological families because there really is not enough. And that happens across the board with adoption and foster care. You know, foster and adoptive parents have a lot more resources available to us once we're kind of connected into the system than biological families often ever have. Mm -hmm. As far as mental health, medical health, support in race and identity, all of those things. I agree with you. It is a little easier if you're a foster parent. It's a privilege of, I mean, really being at a different place in life. Yeah. And it's sad, but true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so as adoptive parents yourself who've been through the system, would you recommend it to others? Um, and if so, where would you tell them to start? I mean, it's the best, hardest thing I've ever done. And I would choose this path a million times again. It is hard. Um, and it's hard for the kids. And I don't want to put it all that it's hard for us. It's hard to parent kids from hard places that are dealing with hard things. And that doesn't stop. You know, people will say, our children were all very small when they came into our home. Yeah. Um, but they are living as adoptees for their entire life. And those questions and those sen the sense of belonging and the identity issues, I mean, those go well into adulthood. It's, it comes up again a lot of times when adoptees become parents. But yes, I would do it again. Um, I would say if anyone asked me, should I be a foster adoptive parent? I would say yes, but do your homework and find your support network. It's, you can't just go in thinking adoption is like a Hallmark movie because yeah. it's not. No, and, and it's different for every family. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It is the best thing uh, we have done. Uh, it's the thing I'm most proud of mm-hmm. is being a foster mom. Uh, we had 13 placements oh, wow. Um, wow. prior to our son being placed with us. And um, that's over two states. Um, but <laughs> and many years, I assume. That, uh, not as many as you'd think, but yes. Um, <laughs> but we had 13 placements before, we, we, um, before our son was placed with us. And um, even when we were moving to Pittsburgh in an interview, I think, I was asked what, you know, what's the thing you're most proud of? And, you know, some people are ripping out these like, you know, spreadsheets of their sales. And I'm like, being a foster mom, Um, (laughs) because it is just this experience. We really look at it. My wife and I look at it as investments in the community and doing what we can for kids and families. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. It's different for every single family that I've been through pre-cert training, both as a child welfare kind of tertiary employee. Like I work in engagement. I'm not on the front lines. But um, you have been in the past. But, I, um, you know, I and all my all the families that I have seen, some have picked babies up from the hospital and adopted in six months. And some have. Uh, my uh, I, was ra- I was raising my hand. We didn't, we didn't request or plan that, but yeah, it did happen. Yeah, but it, ha- it yeah. happens. <laughs> and some families have kids for two days and they go home. And and then there's journeys in between. And as long as you're willing to kind of stick it in, uh, stick in the journey and go up and down the roller coaster, um, foster parenting and if adoption is in your path. Um, adoption, too, is probably the one of the most important things you can do is to provide a home for a kiddo that doesn't have one. Um, but, you know, someone told me when we were looking to adopt, when you domestic infant adopt, you pay with your dollars. And when you adopt through foster care, you would you pay with your heart. And it was it was so true when we adopted our son. So. Jamie Simmons and Meg St. Esprit, thank you both again for what you're doing here and also what you're doing to try to get the message out, you, Meg, and to help our community. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. A little more news before you go. The city is paying $8 million to settle a wrongful death lawsuit from the family of Jim Rogers. We talked about him on the show. Rogers died in 2021, a day after police shocked him with a taser over and over again in Bloomfield. The family's attorney told reporters it's the largest amount the city's ever paid to settle a civil rights case. He also shared recommendations for improving policing, including training officers on how to de-escalate situations and how to provide medical care after deploying tasers. You might remember five officers were fired in connection with Roger's death and three others were disciplined, but none of them have been charged with a crime. And don't forget, today is the last day to register to vote or change your party affiliation for Pennsylvania's closed primary on May 16th. We'll include links in our show notes where you can register or check your registration. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, please tell someone, rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed to our Hey Pittsburgh newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye, y'all. And then you can't vote if you're an independent. It's stupid.